Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. One really interesting byproduct of the last year's extraordinary central bank moves is a re-emergence of interest in bonds and fixed income from investors across the spectrum. We're hearing about this all the time, getting emails and when we talk to clients in, in person, it's kind of fascinating. Bond markets themselves have been sending some very strong signals to investors and there are plenty of people who are interested in getting a better understanding of what had really become something of a forgotten zone for investors over the last decade with ultra low rates. Today, I'm joined by Chris Joy of Coolabar Capital, who many of you would know. Chris has been on this podcast multiple times, always has something very interesting to say. He's a prolific commentator and manages a series of fixed income strategies for institutional and retail investors. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me again, Gemma. It's uh, it's always great. We're going to start with the basics, which is perhaps not necessary for you, but a bit of a bit of a necessary one for the rest of us, uh, having sort of forgotten about fixed income for a while. Certainly, most types. Can you perhaps give us a bit of a refresher of the purpose of fixed income for for companies, for investors, where it's traditionally sat in a portfolio, how it is supposed to act relative to other asset classes? Yeah, sure. I mean, I like to think of fixed income through the prism of a bank, and a bank funds itself through debt and equity. So everyone remembers or would be familiar with the equity. Um, they're the shares listed on the ASX. So you can trade you know, CBA shares, NAB shares, and so on. Very, very easy, obviously, through NAB trade. And you can also lend money to banks. We don't think of it this way, but when we put money into a deposit, we're actually lending money to the bank. That's a, a senior ranking debt, and the bank pays us interest. You know, on TDs now, we're getting 4 to 5% interest rates. And between bank deposits and bank equity, we have other forms of mostly debt. So you have things called senior bonds uh, issued by the banks, so the major banks and all banks uh, for that matter. And right now, for example, on a five-year you know, NAB senior bond, you're probably going to get paid somewhere between 45 and 5% per annum interest. One step down the capital structure, as it's called, you have subordinated bonds or tier two bonds. And on a, a NAB tier two bond today, you probably earn anywhere from 5.5% to 6.5% interest. And then finally, the penultimate step in that uh, capital stack uh, is known as hybrids. So they rank above shares or equity, but below subordinated bonds in an, an event where NAB was to be wound up. And current hybrid spreads are such that you earn annual income of about 65 to 7%. And as you say, Gemma, the world's really changed because uh, as recently as 2021, TDs were paying you about 0.5%, not 4 to 4.5%. Senior bank bonds were paying you similar returns, so you know, about 0.5%, 0, 0. Um, sometimes even less, not 45 to 
T2 bonds were paying you 1.25% annual interest, not you know, five and a half to six and a half percent. And hybrids were paying uh, as little as about uh, 2% annual income, you know, not six and a half to seven percent. So the the role of fixed income in a portfolio, which was your question, is really to serve as a diversifier and a risk reducer compared to a portfolio that was just chock-a-block full of bank shares or equities. So generally, you'll see at the, the safest end of that spectrum, cash deposits have no risk. You're always going to get your money paid back, no matter what. There's even a government guarantee of bank deposits. Uh, bank senior bonds have incredibly low risk. There's never been a default in modern history. They're very liquid. You can trade you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a day of bank senior bonds if you had the wherewithal. Obviously, not everyone does. But but they're you know double A minus rated for the major banks. They're regarded as being implicitly government guaranteed, interestingly, by the credit rating agencies. Um, and they're paying you four and a half to five percent. There can be mark to market moves in the value of uh, bank senior bonds. So, for example, in March 2020, which was that first real uh, pandemic shock month, uh, the value of bank senior bonds on an unrealized basis probably fell about 1%, but they quickly recovered their value when people realised that the world was fine. And similarly, bank tier two bonds, in that same month, they probably had an unrealised loss of a few percent, but again, quickly recovered. And then if we move down into the hybrids, the hybrid market in March 2020 fell about uh, 5 to 6%. But again, rebounded quickly. Uh, if you compare that to bank stocks in March 2020, major bank shares fell about 20 to 30 percent. So, with higher risk comes higher return always. And in a portfolio like a self-managed super fund, it absolutely makes sense for most folks to have a combination of cash, senior bank bonds, T2 bank bonds, hybrids, equities, and probably other bonds, so government bonds, corporate bonds, and obviously non-bank equities. That would be my quick summary, Gemma. Thank you. And it's so fascinating to hear you talk about these things. So if you read a, you know, this is what you need to know about bonds introductory guide, there's always something in there about default risk and about what happens when interest rates move. And to be honest, for a long time, we haven't really given that a lot of thought, right? It hasn't felt very important. And <laughs> the last 18 months, suddenly all of those things are incredibly important. The issue of default risk, we've had a couple of examples, the importance of government guarantees, we've had astonishing rate moves. Let's talk about the rates bit first because that's having real live impacts on most people at this point in time. So we've seen rates go from close to zero to well above 3% in Australia, higher around the world. We're seeing 50 basis point moves from central banks. It's pretty astonishing where we are and how quickly it's happened. As you noted in our last recording, which was fascinating for anyone who didn't hear it, please go back and listen to it. It's so interesting. Uh, the RBA in Australia was saying no rate hikes till 2024, all things being equal, which they said turned out not to be. But let's talk about what happens when rates move and particularly when they move aggressively like this. What happens to bonds and to fixed income products? Yeah, so this is going to get slightly inside baseball. 
and slightly technical, and I hate using technical terms, but let's break it down. So think of bonds like bank deposits because deposits are just loans to banks. They're the same thing, right? And with a bank deposit, you can have a variable rate account. So that account will pay you higher interest as the RBA cash rate rises and conversely, lower interest if it falls. Uh, and then you can have a fixed rate term deposit. So you might go into a three-year TD and you fix your interest. And today, you're probably fixing at around you know three and a half to four percent, maybe a bit higher, maybe four, four and a half percent. But imagine that you buy a or invest in a three-year fixed rate term deposit and you fix your interest at say 4.5%. Then imagine a world in which the RBA hikes rates uh, and lifts rates by say another 3%. So we're currently at a 3.6% cash rate. And imagine we go for the sake of the argument to say 6.6%. At that point, you'll be able to buy term deposits that are probably paying a similar rate around 6.5%. And so that three-year TD you bought at 4.5% is going to look pretty poor. And if you were to trade that TD to another person, they would say, Jim, and no, I'm not, I don't, I don't want a 4.5% TD because I can get 6.5% TDs. So for me to buy that off you, you're going to have to give me an equivalent yield of 6.5%. And the price of that TD would fall until you could sell it on a 6.5% yield. It's kind of similar also to equities. Um, most people understand that as a, a company's share price falls, all things being equal, its dividend yield will rise. And that is true of fixed rate bonds. So as interest rates increase, if you fixed your interest, the price of your bond will fall such that the yield is the same as external yields. Now, with a floating rate bond, it's very different. The floating rate bond is basically identical to a variable rate savings account. So if you bought a, um, a variable rate account and it was currently paying you, for argument's sake, 3.6%, and the RBA went to 6.6%, that's what you would earn. And your price does not change. So on a variable rate bond, the interest rate moves up and down with RBA rates, but the price does not vary. Does that sort of make sense, Gemma? It makes perfect sense. And I think what is super beneficial for anyone listening is we have real live examples now. Often this is very hypothetical, but anyone who is investing, putting money in the bank and so on at the moment knows how much things have moved and, and understands to an extent that the price you're paying and the price you're getting for different things is moving really quickly as a result of rates when no, we're only moving quarter of a percent. It wasn't that interesting, but the one that's moved as much as they have, these are live examples now, right? It's having a massive impact. Yeah. And, and I just add there, Gemma, that um, that's exactly right. And the beauty of um, these markets is you have the choice. So you can invest in floating rate bonds, or they're actually called floating rate notes or you can invest in fixed rate bonds. And the way it actually works is CBA or NAB or any other bank will normally issue both at the same time. So if you want to buy a CBA senior bond, 
you have the option of fixing your interest or keeping it floating. So if you don't want that interest rate risk that you get when rates rise, um, then you, you can float. If, on the other hand, you want to make that bet, then you can fix. Now, I can give you a practical example, actually, that just kind of sprung to mind. Like I have um, very high net worth clients, billionaires, and some of these guys will have hundreds of millions of dollars of major bank senior bonds and T2 bonds because they basically look around and they say, if I can get 55 to 6.5% on major bank T2, which are the going rates, that looks bloody attractive compared to, say, residential property, which is kind of if you buy an investment property in Sydney or Melbourne, you're currently earning about 3 to 4% per annum in rental yields um, before all your costs. If you buy a commercial property building, an office building, right now, an A-grade building will pay you only 4.5%. So you actually get better returns on cash than you do in some cases in resident commercial property. And to be able to get 6% or 6.5% on major bank bonds is very attractive. But equally, I have other clients that are also billionaires that say rather than floating the interest rate and therefore having the risk that if the RBA cuts, I earn less interest, I actually want to fix all my interest. So I have a client that late last year fixed the interest on about uh, almost 300 million of uh, major bank uh, senior and tier two bonds, and they've made an absolute fortune because the interest rates around the world since late last year have actually, these are long, this is going to be slightly confusing, but these are the long-term yields have actually fallen as bond markets say central banks at some point are going to have to cut. So at some point in the future, the Fed and the RBA will have to lower rates, and that's now being expressed through bond markets. So whilst recently all the central banks have been hiking, their short-term or cash rates their overnight rates, the 10-year Aussie government bond yield has fallen from as high as over 4% at one point uh, in the last uh, 12 months to uh, about uh, 60 to 80 basis points lower than that today. So um, if I just pull up the 10-year government bond yield right now on my Bloomberg terminal, we're currently trading uh, at about 3.3%. And so that reduction in yields has actually boosted the value of fixed rate bonds. The floating rate notes have not really been impacted because those short-term cash rates have been climbing higher and we've yet to see those cuts. But if we did get central bank cuts, then what would happen is the FRNs, the floating rate notes, would be delivering you less interest, whereas if you bought the fixed rate bonds on those fixed rates you know, back at the uh, high point of the interest rate cycle, then you would have locked in those high yields. So there are the costs and benefits of fixing that interest or choosing to float it. So it's 
obviously not a massive issue for those of us who are not billionaires having to worry too much about our $300 million uh, fixed income portfolios. But it is super interesting as an investor to think about how you might start getting this exposure. And you've made the point about comparing yields between different asset classes. I know some of our younger investors were saying, but you've got the potential for capital growth. And this is true. You do in equities and property have the potential for capital growth, but we do have a lot of investors, a huge proportion who are in retirement phase or very close, they do not want that capital risk. They don't want to see the potential for capital losses as well as capital growth. And they also need yield. And one of the biggest challenges for those people over the last decade, in fact, more than that, really 15 years, has been seeing the income from their portfolios fall unless they were moving further and further up the capital scale or up the risk scale into things like equity. So they looked at the yield on equities and thought that was very attractive relative to fixed income, which is a bit of a turnabout, right? It's not the way you learn about these things. One thing I'd love to talk about because Again, it's a live example of something that is discussed usually theoretically. We've had bank failures now in the US, very, very high profile, and suddenly live conversations about government guarantees, how they work, the capital stack, who gets their money back and who doesn't. Could you talk through that quickly for any investors who are a bit confused about it and who want to think about relative risk in their portfolios? Yeah, and I think... Uh, the starting point is actually your comment about yields. So like on CBA shares right now, you get a, a fully franked dividend yield. So grossed up franking credits of about 6%. And I think previously that was regarded as very attractive. But um, today when you can get CBA senior bonds paying 5% and CBA T2 bonds paying you know, five and a half to six and a half percent, and CBA hybrids paying six point seven percent. A lot of investors are saying actually, a six percent yield on the equity is actually not very attractive, and I need much more return to sort of command my capital. And we're definitely seeing a huge growth in the demand for fixed income. Um, we're seeing that in the institutional community, so super funds that in the world in which there was no yield, you know, for the last 30 years, we've had declining rates and we've had this reach for risk and a search for yield. And super funds have chased return in equities, private equity, venture capital, property, and so on. Uh, actually, another asset class that has really emerged since 2008 is also uh, private credit or high yield debt or junk debt, very risky loans. Uh, these are loans banks wouldn't normally make, and instead they're made by non-bank lenders. And that that space has absolutely exploded because they were offering, you know, four, five, six, six, seven percent returns against or juxtaposed against a cash rate of you know zero point one percent. So that used to look attractive; it no longer does. So I think that that's really important um, that we're seeing these huge shifts in portfolios out of equities, out of property, out of private debt and high yield bonds and back into fixed income. And I think that's gripping both at the retail consumer level, but also uh, at the big end of town. To answer your question on Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse, um, so what does this mean for us as Australians and as fixed income investors? Um, I guess the first point is that 
bank failures are possible. Um, and what we've seen with Silicon Valley Bank is a small US regional bank fall over. Its depositors were protected, but the shareholders were wiped out. And, and this is a you know, conceivable contingency. In the uh, case of Credit Suisse, shareholders lost 90% of their money. The bondholders were protected. The hybrid holders were wiped out. And the depositors were protected. And in response to these very, very rapid digital deposit runs uh, on banks that have really emerged since we've seen internet-enabled banking, so this didn't happen in 2008, when we had that crisis, people were queuing outside their, their bank branches in the UK, for example, to pull money out of Northern Rock. And that hasn't happened this time. This time it's been a much more high-velocity uh, digital banking run where we saw people try to pull $42 billion out of Silicon Valley Bank on a single day. But the lesson for, I think, investors is, um, is really multifold. The first is that in all these cases, bank depositors have been protected and governments have actually unleashed even stronger guarantees of cash deposits. So we've heard of alternatives to deposits like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. They have suffered very large price falls since 2021 in the order of 70 to 80%, but no Silicon Valley or Credit Suisse uh, cash investors lost any money at all. And there have been even broader government guarantees of, of banks uh, unfurled since these crises emerged. Um, across the capital structure, it's a little bit more complicated. So Credit Suisse had a situation where they had issued hybrids to their investors, and these hybrids were unusual because rather than converting into equity, which is what normally happens with Aussie bank hybrids, and diluting shareholders down in a, a bank bust-up, uh, these hybrids were zeroed. Um, that can't happen with Aussie bank and insurer hybrids. Our ASX-listed bank hybrids automatically convert into equity in the event that a bank were to blow up. And so shareholders lose first, uh, and only then do the hybrids uh, potentially suffer losses, and the hybrids would need to be wiped out, and thereafter you know, the Tier 2 bonds and senior bonds face risk. So, so I guess the key message here has been that Aussie bank hybrid holders and insurance hybrid holders benefit from structures that don't have these write-off provisions that Credit Suisse had and couldn't face a scenario um, that was identical to that Swiss situation. The other key message has been that the Aussie banks are the best capitalised banks in the world globally, and they also have the strongest liquidity metrics um, of any global banks in our view. And that's because partly we have an incredibly tough regulator in APRA that has forced the banks to continuously improve their capitalization and liquidity since the GFC. So if we just look at capital, the four major banks have boosted their equity capital by $150 billion since 2014. On liquidity, 
Aussie banks only hold government bonds as a liquidity buffer, whereas banks around the rest of the world are allowed to hold much riskier and less liquid securities, such as residential mortgage-backed securities. So the message from um, the overriding, I think, lesson from Silicon Valley and Credit Suisse has been that banks um, actually need government guarantees of their deposits. These government guarantees have become more far-reaching. As soon as you guarantee a bank's deposits, it's very hard to get a deposit run because they face no risk, the uh, the depositors. And government guarantees of deposits, therefore, reduce the risk of default on bank bonds. But having said that, there are residual risks, um, obviously, across all securities. And you, every once in a while, do face uh, situations like we saw with Credit Suisse uh, where investors can suffer loss. Obviously, Aussie hybrids are very different to Credit Suisse hybrids. Interestingly, um, we do know of several Aussie investors who own the Credit Suisse hybrids and had sued that search for yield because they were offering very high returns and they've been completely wiped out. So um, the, the trade-off between risk and return is, is normally uh, unavoidable, but I would argue that uh, Aussie bank bonds and Aussie bank hybrids, beyond being amongst the best rated securities globally, are, uh, in our judgment, amongst the safest securities globally. And we obviously face today a new situation and a new regime whereby uh, interest rates and yields on these securities are much, much higher than they have been in the past. It's all so interesting. As I said, the fact that we have live examples is so fascinating for so long. It's very dry and doesn't seem very interesting when you've got live examples at all changes. Question without notice, we've actually published on NabTrade a lot of your commentary about what has happened uh, with Silicon Valley Bank, with uh, the various other challenges that have happened with Credit Suisse and so on, because it's been so timely and so fabulous the way you've clearly articulated what's been happening. One of the conclusions that's been drawn pretty broadly was the issue with Silicon Valley Bank was the mismatch between their holding of long-dated treasuries and then these really short-term deposits or just massively uh, very liquid deposits, uh, So, which caused the run to an extent that people were concerned that they hadn't, uh, hadn't marked down their treasuries appropriately and then just went and withdrew everything. As you said, $42 billion in a day is quite the run. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is there any relevance there for Australia? Yeah. The US banking system is, is really quite unusual. There's 4,500 banks on average since 2000. And, um, one, about 25 US banks actually die each year. And Silicon Valley Bank was kind of um, quite typical of these small regional banks. They tend to be focused on one geography and they tend to have concentrations in industries. Where SVB was perhaps a bit different was normally a bank takes in deposits and lends out this money. Silicon Valley uh, bank only lent out 43% of its deposits. And the rest, it squirreled away in superficially safe bonds. Uh, treasuries, as you mentioned, but also things called CMBS and RMBS, which are basically home loan back bonds and commercial property loan back bonds. And they all had very high credit ratings and ostensibly they're, they're quite safe. 
the problem is, and they owned Silicon Valley Bank owned about 117 billion of these bonds, which is where its depositors' money uh, was placed. Uh, only a, a small proportion was actually put into loans to homeowners or businesses. The as you say, Gemma, the the challenge with SVB was it basically ran a big interest rate risk uh, mismatch. So its deposits are mostly at call, and so it would pay ordinarily the Fed fund rate or the Fed cash rate or something similar on those deposits. And for a very long time, that uh, Fed cash rate was very low. You know, it went down to zero percent in circa you know 2015 or thereabouts. Uh, it was floored to close to zero percent again after the pandemic in 2020. So SVB was not paying much interest on those deposits. At the same time, it was investing in long dated, so circa six to seven year bonds, as you mentioned. And it was earning much higher yields on those bonds because normally um, something we call the yield curve, which basically expresses where the market thinks uh, the cash rate will be over long periods of time, that normally slopes up. What that means is you earn, normally earn much more interest on a, a five-year bond issued by a government than a, a, you know, a six-month or 12-month bond issued by the same government. And so SVB was running a carry trade, basically taking in short-term money, putting it into long-term bonds, and picking up the spread in interest rate terms between those two things. Now, what was unusual was most banks will hedge out those risks. And in fact, any large bank is required to hedge out those risks. And if it doesn't hedge out those risks, and it suffers losses on the bonds, the bank has to report that loss through its PL or through its capital. SVB had lobbied the Trump administration successfully to be excluded from those rules. So it wasn't recognizing any of the risks on its bonds. And as we described earlier in the podcast, when you invest in a fixed rate bond, if rates go up, you can suffer losses. And that's exactly what happened with SVB. The Fed lifted its cash rate from you know, around 0% towards 5% today, uh, a huge increase, uh, a 500 basis point increase uh, or thereabouts in rates. And fixed rate bonds were hammered. If you owned a six-year fixed rate bond in Australia, just because of the increase in the RBA's cash rate, you lost about 13% of the value of your money on an unrealized basis, um, fixing your interest over FY22. Now, what happened was SVB started bleeding deposits as rate hikes smashed the tech market. And as its uh, tech depositors started pulling money out, it lost about 30 billion of deposits over 2022 and the four, first quarter of 2023. And as these deposits went out the door, it had to sell bonds. And in March, it sold 21 billion of bonds and declared that it had lost 1.8 billion on those bonds and tried to raise 2.25 billion of fresh equity capital 
to cover those losses. And it was really that event where investors said, holy moly, you've got all these embedded losses on your bonds because you didn't hedge your interest rate risk that uh, the depositors said, I want to pull my money out because I might face the risk of loss. Interestingly, with SVB and Credit Suisse, the regulators ultimately made it clear that depositors' money was completely guaranteed and was never going to suffer losses. If they had made that clear one week prior to these banks uh, folding, the banks never would have suffered these deposit runs. And I think that is a lesson for regulators globally. They're, they're basically moving much more proactively and preemptively to assure depositors that their money is guaranteed. But crucially, the, the key message for Australians is that our banks hedge out all these risks. Our banks don't take these same risks in any way, shape or form. So all Aussie banks hedge their bond holdings back to a um, a floating rate uh, interest rate, uh, and they absolutely do not take uh, the risks that uh, SVB assumed. And if they did take those risks, they would have to um, continuously report the losses that they incurred on their bonds through their P&L and through their capital base. And, and you know, the truth is that banks won't hedge out 100% of all these risks uh, there will be some uh, modest interest rate risk always left on their balance sheet. And um, it is absolutely the case that Aussie banks have reported over the last 12 months very, very modest uh, reductions in the value of their bond holdings transparently because of interest rate movements. Um, one final point I'd make is APRA is actually the only regulator in the world this is, again, slightly inside baseball, but it's the only regulator in the world that requires Aussie banks to hold capital against interest rate risk as part of what is known as their Pillar 1 requirements. So once again, APRA takes the toughest line globally, we would argue, on bank capital. They take definitely the toughest line globally on bank liquidity, and they also definitely take the toughest line globally on hedging interest rate risks. And the banks don't like it. They've complained about it uh, a lot in the past, but Aussie banks are now benefiting because what we're seeing, Gemma, is a flight to quality globally, where if you're a, a big in-store investor and you had exposure to US regional banks or European investment banks, you're reallocating or you have already reallocated. And a lot of that money is going to organisations like NAB, CBA, ANZ and Westpac because they are recognised as the safest banks in the world. I think that gives everyone a little bit of comfort, not least because all of us bank with <laughs> one or more. Maybe we might go a little bit more regional, but uh, we don't have 4,500 banks to choose from. Uh, so there's uh, there's a lot of exposure for Australians, whether you are a depositor or a borrower or an investor with Australian banks. We uh, we all have an interest in making sure that they're, uh, they're doing okay. To move to a... A more complex question for those who who don't follow bond markets closely and anyone who listens to any market update will know that there's always a bit about what bond markets are up to but may not pay a great deal of attention. If you're an equity investor, bond markets tend not to excite you terribly much unless you're looking for a signal. Can you talk us through some of the 
signals we're getting from bond markets. We know prior to the GFC that bond markets were aggressively signaling a massive dislocation in the economy and in financial markets way before equity markets caught on. Are we seeing similar signals now? There is certainly talk of a recession, but equity markets don't seem to have that priced in. Yeah, so that's, I think, really interesting. Um, So we're definitely seeing bond markets um, through the yield curve inverting. And I'm going to explain what that means. It's actually very simple, classic financial market jargon, but Basically, bond markets are pricing in much lower interest rates in the future. And hence, if you look at the RBA's cash rate, which is 3.6%, as I mentioned, even in Australia, the 10-year government bond yield is only 3.3%. So that yield curve, you know, if you look at the, the overnight or zero-year interest rate, which is 3.6, that's above the 10-year rate at 33 and hence the yield curve is inverted. In the US, it's much more extreme. The Fed fund rate, its cash rate is at 5%, but the US 10-year government bond yield is at circa 3.4%. So that inversion is much uh, is much steeper. And that inversion is normally a very good predictor of a recession. And in our modelling, uh, we've argued since January 22 that the US will go into recession. Our modelling implies Europe will also go into recession. And I think you're right. We would agree that equity is not pricing in these recession risks. So the bond market is saying, and this is, I think, a contestable point, that central banks are actually likely to start cutting rates this year. We think that's very unlikely. Our view, so this is where we disagree with the market pricing. Our view is there are two likely cases. Uh, Either the RBA is going to keep rates high for quite a long time, so potentially one or two years at least, to get inflation back down from 6 to 7% to its 2.5% target, or the RBA is actually going to have to hike again after the current pause. So in April, the RBA paused its hiking cycle. And this is actually quite common. If we look at the last hiking cycle that the RBA affected between 2009 and 2010, it actually paused rates. So it didn't hike for five months. And then it hiked again. If we look at the uh, the second last or penultimate cycle, leading into 2008, the RBA paused on four separate occasions. And three of those pauses were for 12 months or more, following which it started hiking again. And for better or worse, like if you're an investor in cash, you want higher interest rates. So the retirees and the cash investors, um, you know, they'll be cheering for the rate hikes potentially. If you're a floating rate note investor, you want more rate hikes because as rates lift, you earn even more yield. And then finally, if you're a fixed rate bond investor, um, you want the RBA to pause and then cut because as interest rates come down, you'll actually get capital gains. The value of your bond will rise because people will be happy to accept a lower yield from you if you were to sell that bond than the yield that you locked in previously. 
So it's really, really interesting. Um, there's no doubt that the equity market wants central banks to pause and then cut. Uh, but our view, Gemma, is um, there are there are valuable signals. Uh, the inversion in the yield curve over a very long time frame. So looking at the the zero year rate versus the ten year rate, that makes sense to us. But the prospect of cuts this year, we're much more dubious about. We think the more likely paths are a protracted pause or a second hiking cycle. Well, that's very interesting. I think our a mortgage holder listeners might not be too thrilled about not cutting soon, but there'll be others who who like that idea. One final question. There are so many people who are suddenly reconsidering moving into fixed income and thinking and taking in everything you've said about the range of fixed income products available to them, how rates move and so on. What advice, obviously not personal advice, but what general thoughts would you leave people with as it relates to building, probably building a fixed income allocation in your portfolio? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to get quite specific. This is not personal advice. It's just like the way I build my portfolio. And and so th- this is the way I view the world. Um, and I'm negative, very negative on parts of the fixed income market and the equity market and the property market. Uh, but I'm also very positive on other sectors. So let me, let me be specific. Um, if you look at the extra interest rate margin banks are paying on their bonds. So, you know, I mentioned, you know, in, in simplistic terms, if CBA issues a senior bond tomorrow, it might pay circa 5%, and that would be um, substantially above the current RBA cash rate of 3.6%. So that would obviously be 1.4% above RBA cash. And that margin has expanded dramatically over the last one to two years. So we're getting much more interest rate pickup or what we call much more spread on bank senior bonds and bank tier two bonds and also bank hybrids than we did you know, 6, 12, 18 months ago. So we like bank bonds and we were negative on bank bonds in 2021. I was actually shorting, so short selling about $10 billion of global credit, including many billions of dollars of bank bonds in 21 and 22, because we believed those spreads needed to move sharply wider, which is what they did. So I love bank senior paper, super liquid. Our view is it's basically risk-free. It's double A minus rated. The banks even pay, interestingly, a tax here in Australia to the government of a 0.06% per annum on the value of their wholesale debts, or they're called wholesale liabilities. And that tax is because the market assumes and and the government recognises that there's actually an implicit government guarantee on some of those securities. And during the GFC, the government actually did guarantee uh, the bank's senior bonds. So I like bank senior bonds, super liquid, very attractive yields of four and a half percent right now. I really like bank T2 bonds, you know, killer interest rates of anywhere from five and a half to 6.7 percent on bank T2. We've bought billions of dollars of this stuff um, since June last year. And I've also bought billions of dollars of uh, bank senior. My, my bond portfolio today is, is about 13 billion. So we run a, a large portfolio. 
I have I have 35 guys in my team, eight, eight portfolio managers, and um about 14 analysts. And and we run global portfolios in Australia in US dollars and euros. Um, but our top pick globally is major bank senior paper, major bank tier two paper. I don't mind hybrids. Hybrids have actually recently become much more attractive. We had been a seller of hybrids. So I've sold gross about 2.1 billion of hybrids since uh, March last year. Net, I've sold about 1.1 billion of hybrids. But hybrid spreads have improved dramatically. Uh, you know, five-year major bank hybrids were only paying you about 2.2% above bank bills. And the bank bill rate is very similar to the RBA cash rate. And that spread uh, recently blew out to 3.2% above bank bills. So hybrid spreads have improved, but the all-in yield, whether you're getting 6.7% on hybrids or 6% on bank tier two, compared to CBA equities paying 6%, or if you look at overall Aussie equities paying, also if you look at the uh, you know, the ASX market at large, the fully franked, you know, grossed up for franking credits dividend yield right now is about 6%. Um, that looks terrible to me. Uh, you know, commercial property yields of 45 to 5.5% look terrible. Normally, commercial property pays you a three to five percent premium above government bonds, and that means you know that it should really be paying like in our view seven, eight, nine percent right now, uh, and they're not doing that. Uh, high yield debt we think is a huge um, risk right now. We think we're going to have a big default cycle. We've argued this for several years. And we're starting to see um, defaults globally. So global defaults this year are the highest since 2009. US insolvencies are the highest since 2010. Uh, we're seeing a big uptick in the defaults on non-bank RMBS bonds. Um, and we think, we're convinced that banks stopped lending to a lot of risky sectors after they 2008 GFC, and most of that risk went into the non-bank market. So we do not like non-bank lenders' bonds or debts, uh, debt securities. I mean, there are some that we don't mind, but but basically what is known as the private credit market uh, or the high-yield bond market, we're very, very negative on. Uh, it's incredibly illiquid, and the risk is you're going to be stuck with a lot of loans that go into default and expose you to large losses. So right now, you know, if I was building a portfolio for my mother, which I do, like she's basically 100% cash, senior bonds, T2 bonds, some hybrid exposures, and you know, if if I can um, control it, uh, you know, very little exposure to equities or property, uh, which are highly interest rate sensitive sectors. And again, our central case is we either get very high rates for a long time, and a lot of distress, a big increase in unemployment possibly a, a global recession. That, that is, again, our central case. Uh, open question as to whether we get a recession here in Australia. We are benefiting from very strong population growth, high commodity prices, and uh, government budgets that are generally in terrific shape. The federal budget's almost in surplus. You know, Queensland and WA are basically in surplus. Victoria is a bit of a basket case. But the new New South Wales government, we're very positive on and we think that they will uh, fix New South Wales's finances. So I'm a big advocate right now of having liquidity, which is what you get through cash and high-grade bonds, 
and optionality, and then banking these five, six, seven percent interest rates, um, which is more than enough, you know, for most people. If you think about target returns, that's what I'd be doing, Gemma. I also one final point is I wouldn't have right now many, if any, corporate bond exposures. Corporate bonds, in our view, tend to be much more liquid and much more cyclical. And uh, we have no corporate debt exposures in our portfolio at all. It's 100% bank and insurer bonds. That's so comprehensive. Thank you. And I think for anyone listening, you've probably not considered the possibility of getting 6 to 7% with pretty low risk for a long time. But uh, the world's changed a lot in the last 12 to 18 months. You can rethink some of your allocations. We do know exactly as Chris said, the institutional allocations are changing dramatically and really fast. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see how retail investors pursue the same objectives. Chris, we publish a lot of your commentary on NAB Trade. It's fantastic. You do very up-to-date stuff on a whole variety of topics. You're really outspoken in your views on property and so many subjects that people are really interested in. Can you let people know where to follow you and how to keep up to date with what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I post to Twitter at CJOYE, on LinkedIn, uh, Livewire. I write a weekly column for the Financial Review um, and then you know, the, the two most visible products we run are BetaShares Active Hybrid Australia Fund, um, uh, which is uh, under the ticker HBRD, and our Active Composite Bond Strategy, which is FIXD on CHIX. So they're the two listed products we're responsible for managing. Uh, and then we run a bunch of unlisted funds, and you can find out more about those at coolabarcapital.com. Fantastic. Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you, Gemma. And thank you so much for listening also. As I said, we love hearing from you. We love getting your feedback and questions you're keen on. Uh, Hybrids and bonds and fixed income are coming up more and more often, so hopefully this helps. Uh, Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth.com at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.